I was out doing my patrols. We just started our shift that day. And I was driving down Sunset Boulevard, and I had received a call. A beige-colored car with no license plates following this uh, little girl. Tali Shapiro was uh, an eight-year-old little girl walking to school uh, back in 1968. Good Samaritan, a witness, sees the little girl, the little eight-year-old Tali, get in the car thinks it's suspicious, follows him, and puts a call into LAPD. Well, I went to that location, and I started knocking, and I said, police officer, open the door, I need to talk to you. This male appeared at the door. I will always remember that face at that door. Very evil face. He says, I'm in the shower, I, I gotta get dressed. And I told him, okay, you got 10 seconds Open this door, I want to talk to you. Uh, finally, I kicked the door in. The image will be with me forever. We could see in the kitchen that there was a body on the floor, a lot of blood. They say a picture says a thousand words in that image of those little white Mary Janes on that floor with that metal bar that he used to strangle her with. And that puddle of blood, it just looks like too much blood to come out of a, a tiny little eight-year-old like that. We determined that she was dead. We started searching the residence. There was a lot of photograph equipment, and all of us were amazed at the amount of photographs that he had there of young girls, very young girls. We found a lot of ID, picture ID of a Rodney Akala. He was a, a student at UCLA. That's one of the first times he ever turned up on the radar for law enforcement. My name is Matt Murphy. I'm a deputy DA for the Orange County DA's Office Homicide Unit. Rodney Alcala managed to give them the slip. As things would have it, we were always 15 minutes behind him. All the emphasis went on, where is he? Where did he go? And we kept coming up empty. It's the From all outward appearances, Rodney Alcala was a handsome... Please welcome Rodney Alcala. Charming. I'm called the banana, and I look really good. Smart young man that wouldn't hurt a fly. So I'll take one. Number one. Polly Shapiro was only the very beginning of a long series of murders and assaults committed by Rodney Alcala. Rodney Alcala is the devil. And he had to be stopped. The Killing Game. Tonight's 48 Hours Mystery. Mystery continues in 90 seconds. Tonight, we bring you the story of Rodney Alcala, which sadly is the last story reported by the late Harold Dow. Harold was a 48 Hours correspondent for 22 years, as long as 48 Hours has been on television. His passion and his generous spirit are deeply woven into the fabric of this broadcast. I'm Jay Dow, a correspondent for WCBS in New York and a contributing correspondent for CBS News. Harold was my uncle, my friend, and my colleague. 
He had spent more than a year working on this story and was just finishing it when he died suddenly last month. He was determined to bring this intricate tale to our viewers. So tonight, for the last time, 48 Hours presents Harold Dow. You can tell that she had been raped. There was no breathing. I, I thought she was dead. We all thought she was dead. Los Angeles police officer Chris Camacho found eight-year-old Tally Shapiro battered and bleeding, her throat constricted by a 10-pound steel bar on that September morning in 1968. So I grabbed a towel and I uh, picked up the edge of the bar and I, I laid it off to the side. Camacho then left Tally's side to continue searching the house for her attacker. Moments later, when he walked back into the kitchen, he witnessed a miracle. She was gagging and trying to breathe, and I thought, one for the good guys. She's going to make it. Clinging to life, Tally was rushed to the hospital. It had it not been for that police officer, Tally Shapiro would have died on Ronnell Call's kitchen floor. The suspect, 25-year-old UCLA graduate Rodney Alcala, had slipped through the officer's fingers. When I kicked in the front door, the other officers came running around to assist me, and uh, the suspect went out the back door. But to Camacho, all that mattered was saving Tally. When I was in Vietnam, and we were in combat, I was uh, trying to save uh, this guy, and uh, didn't do it. He died. So with Telly, it was kind of like God gave me a second chance to save someone. Soon after Tally healed, her parents moved her out of the country. I found out that they had moved to uh, Mexico, that they did not want to raise the daughter in uh, the society any longer. And that was the last I heard of them. The investigation was now in the hands of detectives. With Alcala in the wind, Detective Steve Hodell was grasping at thin air. All kinds of rumors, he'd gone to Mexico, he'd gone to Canada, he'd gone to Europe, uh, but we kept coming up empty. Back then, you know, we didn't have a lot of the forensics you have today. Complicating matters, it seemed no one was willing to believe the gifted student could be responsible for such a heinous crime. He was a snake charmer. I went and talked to his professor at UCLA. He says he wouldn't harm a fly. He truly believed that, you know, and, and a lot of people did. And we went to the FBI, you know, we said, this guy is going to commit other crimes. He's not going to stop. In 1969, the FBI put Rodney Alcala on its most wanted list. We've got to find this guy. We've got to get him off the streets. We've got to bring him to justice. Nearly two years later came the break they'd been waiting for. Orange County Deputy District Attorney Matt Murphy. Two girls went to their local post office and they looked and there was Rodney Alcala's photo on the FBI 10 Most Wanted list and they looked up and said, oh my gosh, that's Mr. Berger. The girls knew Alcala as John Berger, their counselor at an all-girls summer camp in New Hampshire. They reported to the dean. He calls the authorities. They arrest him, take him into custody. I get a phone call from the FBI saying, we've got your man in custody. He's ready to be picked up. In fact, Rodney Alcala had been hiding in plain sight for the last three years. 
Rodney Alcala, after uh, raping and, and almost killing Tally Shapiro, he fled to New York. He made friends. He, he charmed people. He got into NYU film school, and he was living the life, kind of the bohemian lifestyle of a film student in the, uh, in the early 70s. In August 1971, with Alcala finally in custody, Detective Hodel had a chance to speak to him. I asked him, so tell me about the Tally Shapiro incident. And basically he says, oh, uh, I want to forget all about that. I don't want to talk about things that Rod Alcala did, as if it was a different person. But with Tally living abroad and unavailable for trial, prosecutors had no choice but to enter into a plea agreement. Part of the problem with the prosecution back then is that uh, Tally Shapiro's family had relocated down to Mexico, so I think that created some logistical problems for the DA uh, back then. In 1972, Rodney Alcala pleaded guilty to a lesser charge of child molestation. But he ultimately was convicted of child molest. He received one year to life back in the old indeterminate sentencing laws. One year to life, and the parole board let him go after 34 months after what he did to Tally Shapiro. Indeterminate sentencing meant a parole board, not a judge, would determine how much time an inmate actually spent in prison. The emphasis was on rehabilitation back then, and he was able to charm the psychiatrist just like he charmed uh, his victims. I mean, this guy should have never been released based on, on the crime itself. But less than three years later, Rodney Alcala was a free man again. I, I, I was flabbergasted, to say the least. It just amazed me. And Alcala had no trouble charming his way back into the swing of things. He was hired by the Los Angeles Times to work as a, as a typesetter. He took photos at weddings, and uh, he was a registered sex offender during all of that, and nobody ever checked. We understand that uh, Rodney Alcala was actually a guest on the dating game. That's right. Please welcome Rodney Alcala. Um, and he was chosen. That's right. Well, I like bananas, so I'll take one. Number one. That's your number one. All right. But the decision to release Rodney Alcala would have catastrophic consequences. And his thrill is, is seeking his prey, capturing, torturing. He's a sadist of the highest order. What he learned in prison was, I'm not going to let my victims live. Say hello to Rodney Alcala. was the spring of 1979 in Southern California, and the disco era was in full swing. But in Huntington Beach, 12-year-old Robin Samso enjoyed far simpler pleasures. We just lived to, to have fun. Bridget Wilvert was Robin's best friend. Everybody could be complaining about being bored, and me and Robin would find ourselves doing cartwheels and back walkovers. The other love of Robin's life was her mom, Mary Ann. She was probably the most loving child a mother could have. Everything she did, she did to please me. 
I loved her warmth. And she was the little sister older brothers, Robert and Tim, doted on. She loved ballet. She loved dancing. She loved gymnastics. She was uh, the glue to the family. She was my best friend. On June 20th, 1979, Robin was going to start her first day of work answering phones at the ballet studio in exchange for lessons. But first, she planned to play for a few hours with Bridget. She arrived at my house at about, gosh, I want to say 11. How much fun can we have during that time? And then I had a great idea. Let's go down to the beach and have a cartwheel competition. Shortly before three, the girls left Bridget's apartment and headed across the Pacific Coast Highway to the beach. I could definitely see a gentleman with dark hair. I mean, he he honed in on us like really like a like a shark in the water honing in on a seal. And he goes, "Can I take your girls' pictures? I'm, you know, in a photography class or for a photo." contest and Robin goes sure and all of a sudden out of nowhere pops up Jackie Young my neighbor you know she goes Bridget is everything okay are you girls all right and man he he took that camera turned his head down and you could almost see like smoke coming off his dress shoes he just he was gone. Shaken, Robin and Bridget turned to go back home. And Robin had thrown her beach towel and everything into her bag, and she's like, well, I'm going to um, get going. And I go, well, take my bike. Take my bike. It's right downstairs. Take my bike and don't stop. That was the last time anyone saw Robin. She was supposed to be home um, 4.35 from her lesson. When her ballet teacher called to say she hadn't made it to class, her family immediately called 911. We spent the next, I did anyway, hours and hours riding up and down the path. You're on your bicycle? Mm-hmm. Looking for your sister? For hours and hours. The hours turned into days. Robin's mother feared the worst. It was uh, probably the most horrifying time of all. You know, not knowing. Police continually questioned the one person they thought might know where Robin could have gone. Her best friend, Bridget. And I, I said, I go... It was the man, that man that took our picture. I really was the only person that could tell you the exact color of his eyes, the height of his cheekbones, the color of his skin, just every detail. On July 2nd, 12 days after Robin last said goodbye to her friend and rode off on her bike, detectives delivered the news no one wanted to hear. I said, let's go see her. He said, we can't do that. I said, that's my baby. Of course I can see her. Why not? He said, because it took us three days to identify her. I said, what's wrong with you people? 
How many little girls with long blonde hair disappeared that it took you three days? He shook my shoulders, and the tears were coming down his face, too. He says, there was no hair. This is pretty much the exact spot where Robin Samso's uh, remains were located. A fire crew conducting routine fire prevention maintenance found Robin's remains in a remote location more than 40 miles from where she was last seen. Orange County DA Matt Murphy has visited the site many times. And there were 12 days for the, uh, for the animals to scavenge Robin's remains. By the time uh, the fire crew actually found her body, she was just bones. The pressure was on to find the killer. Bridget's description resulted in this composite sketch, which was released to the media all over Southern California. His parole officer saw that and, uh, and called the detectives and said, look, there's a guy that used to be on my caseload. Uh, you really need to take a look at him. His name is Rodney Alcala. It had been nearly 11 years since Alcala had left eight-year-old Tali Shapiro for dead and almost gotten away with it. But Alcala was easy to find this time. He lived with his parents in Monterey Park, a stone's throw from the mountains where Robin's remains were located. Rodney Alcala is a intelligent, well-mannered, um, pleasant, fun, outgoing, great individual. Beth Kelleher was Alcala's girlfriend at the time. Were you in love with him? Yes. Beth was 22 when she met Alcala in the spring of 1979. They shared a common interest, photography. What did you think of his uh, photography work? I saw a lot of pictures of girls, and that didn't, didn't bother me at all. Young girls? Uh, young girls, I'd say probably from uh, 12, 13 to probably about 30s. What's your best time? Before meeting Beth, Rodney Alcala charmed other women. The best time is at night, nighttime. He's bachelor number one in this episode of The Dating Game from September 1978. Well, that's a perfect example of the, of the charm of Rodney Alcala. When you watch it, he was, he was charming. We're going to have a great time together, Cheryl. He was funny. Uh, he joked. I'm called the banana, and I look really good. <laughs> And he actually got picked. Number one. That's your number one. All right. So when news spread of Robin's June 20th disappearance and then murder, Beth had no reason to suspect her boyfriend. They had just spent a weekend together in Northern California. There was no difference in personality, no difference in the things we did, the things we talked about. But Beth couldn't account for his whereabouts on June 20th. As they really focused in on Mr. Alcala, they learned that he had no alibi, that, that he, nobody could account for his whereabouts at the time. And investigators soon learned that Alcala had added to his record. Rodney Alcala was on bail for a kidnapping rape out of Riverside that had just been committed, um, you know, within a couple of months of the, the murder of Robin Samso. The more they learned about Rodney Alcala, the more perfectly Rodney Alcala fit into the, the profile, essentially, of the person that they were looking for. Rodney Alcala was arrested on July 24th for the kidnap and murder of Robin Samso, 
but the struggle to prove it had only just begun. Akala. What does that name mean to you today? It means um, evil. It means horror. It means pain. And a lot of anger. Robin Samso's mother, Mary Ann, was convinced Rodney Alcala had murdered her 12-year-old daughter as soon as he was arrested in July 1979. So were the Huntington Beach police. Well, we're going to treat this as a homicide now. And uh, he becomes a prime suspect. Every one of those detectives was sure that they had the right guy. But behind the scenes, investigators were working feverishly to shore up what they knew was a shaky case against Alcala. They conducted an interview. They asked him, you know, when you, you ever go to the beach and take photos? And, um, and he said, well, from time to time he would do that. And they said, any pictures of people? And Rodney Alcala kind of looked up and he said, not that I recall. And Alcala said he wasn't the curly-haired photographer Bridget had described. He essentially told the police that he hadn't been to Huntington Beach since 1974. Detective Pat Ellis said Huntington Beach police got an unexpected tip when Alcala's sister came to visit her brother in jail. The conversation was being recorded. One point he mentions him having a storage locker in Seattle, Washington that the cops don't know about. He says this. It's a good thing I don't know about this. I'll tell him about it. So do me a favor, get the stuff out of there, get it, get it cleared out. But what Alcala didn't know was that police had found a receipt for the locker during a search of his home at the time of his arrest. They beat it there, yeah. okay, and they get inside, and there's the mother load. Inside the locker, a cache of photos. Hundreds if not thousands of these, of these different images, and there are dozens upon dozens of these young women that in the pictures clearly are in positions of supreme vulnerability. Police learned Alcala had rented the storage facility and moved his belongings there nine days after Robin Samso's remains were discovered. So they wondered what he could be hiding. They found no photos of Robin or Bridget, but shots of this young girl roller skating along a familiar boardwalk caught their eye. Those detectives being in Huntington Beach actually patrolled that area. The area was Sunset Beach near Huntington Beach, the very place Alcala had denied visiting. Police released the photo, hoping someone would come forward. This girl, she ran over to my front door. She said, Lori, you're on the front page of the paper. They're looking for you. Lori Wirtz, the girl in the photos, was 15 years old. My friend Patty and I were at Sunset Beach. We just saw this man with a big camera. First, he was trying to tell us that he worked for a magazine and telling us that he was in a contest. And, you know, I thought, well, shoot, I'll be in a magazine. That'll be cool. Lori's friend had marked the date in her diary, June 20th. That was the same day, about two miles away from where Robin Samso was, was kidnapped. So... Um, it, that, that photograph was of incredible importance. Two other 16-year-olds said Alcala had approached them on the beach the same day. 
He would approach these teenage girls, and he would use essentially the same line. And then at the end of these encounters, he tried to get them into his car. With several independent witnesses identifying Alcala as the photographer on the beach June 20th, police now formed a theory that Alcala had been out hunting for prey. So when Alcala ran into Robin a second time, he wouldn't be denied. This is the street that she would have been riding her bike up. Do you think she got in the car willingly? Robin Samso was the one that was, she was only 12, she was innocent, she was naive, and she was trusting, and she was also very late. Just like he promised Tally Shapiro, no doubt he convinced Robin to get into the car too. Police were never able to recover Robin's bicycle. And there was still no forensic proof tying Alcala to Robin. Detectives went back to the contents of the storage locker, hoping for more clues. Buried under all this stuff was this tiny little silk bag filled with earrings. Alcala claimed those were his earrings. But when police showed the jewelry to Robin's mother, Mary Ann, she recognized a pair of gold ball studs that she said Robin often borrowed. How do you think they ended up in uh, Rodney Akala's possession? <laughs> you mean after he killed my child? After he murdered her? I think he was one of these kind of predators that keeps trophies. And investigators learned that in the days following Robin's murder, Alcala began to dramatically change his appearance. In 24 hours of the release of that composite, which looks exactly like him, he made arrangements to cut his hair. Totally different. The long, curly hair was gone. Around the same time, Alcala had also changed the carpeting in the back of his car. He told his girlfriend, Beth, he was trying to get rid of the smell of spilled gasoline. But to investigators, the whole story stunk. So at that point, um, those are all the nuts and bolts that you need for a successful prosecution. In February 1980, nearly one year after Robin Samso's murder, Rodney Alcala went on trial. Over the course of two and a half months, there were almost 50 witnesses that testified. It was a very long, very difficult case. The jury convicted Alcala and sentenced him to death. It's a poor exchange for my daughter's life, but maybe it'll save someone else's by him being gone. But the relief would be short-lived. Today, in a five-to-one decision, the California State Supreme Court ruled that Rodney Alcala did not receive a fair trial. The decision would devastate Robin's mother, but the fight for justice was far from over. You know, there's only one perpetrator. That little stone, but the ripples keep going. And there's victims and victims and victims and victims. After the California Supreme Court overturned Rodney Alcala's first conviction in 1984, he was tried and convicted a second time. We, the jury, in the above entitled action, find the defendant, Rodney James Alcala, Guilty of the crime of felony. Death, that's the only penalty that could ever be rendered in a case such as this. But once again, the verdict was overturned. We've gone through a lot of hell because of that animal. A lot of hell. A lot of hell. In 2003, the task of putting together the case again fell to Matt Murphy, 
who in 1979 was about the same age as Robin Samso. You were dealing with a guy who made a career out of working the system. Um, two trials, two convictions, twice sentenced to death, twice overturned. How do you prepare for a case like this? When they reversed it, they also uh, removed a substantial amount of evidence. So when it went up on my desk, we had to basically start from ground zero and work our way up. Murphy would soon get a huge break. During the 22 years the Samso case had wandered through the appellate courts, DNA technology had caught up with Rodney Alcala. Now, Los Angeles cold case squads suddenly linked him to three other unsolved murders. DNA technology was very strong as it pointed to one person and one person only, and that was Rodney Alcala. Los Angeles Deputy DA Gina Satriano charged Alcala for the murders of 18-year-old Jill Barkham, 27-year-old Georgia Wickstead, and 32-year-old Charlotte Lamb, who all had been killed between November 1977 and June 1978. Right at that moment, we realized that not only is Rodney Alcala a vicious murderer in our case, but in fact, he is the serial killer that we always suspected him to be. There was also evidence linking Alcala to yet another L.A. murder. 21-year-old Jill Peranto, who had been killed just six days before Robin Samso disappeared. Jill Parento's case was tied to Rodney Alcala back in 79. Prosecutors had dropped the case at the time because they felt it was too weak. But authorities now saw it fit the pattern of the other murders. In addition to the sexual assault, and the fact that they were all left naked and posed and to the, the beatings and traumas to, to the head. Each of these women were strangled with ligatures with some sort of a tie around their neck. Rodney Alcala was committing murders all over the place in, in an effort to work the system, in an effort to confuse law enforcement. In different jurisdictions. That's right. Hoping that the law enforcement would never talk to each other. That's right. And for years, they didn't. Believing they had enough evidence to convict Rodney Alcala as a serial killer, Matt Murphy and Gina Satriano wanted to prosecute the five Los Angeles area murders together. Having them together really paints the, the true picture of who Rodney Alcala is and gives the jury a, a realistic vision of how he commits his crimes. Two California counties had never shared a murder case, and Alcala successfully fought off the joint trial for years. But the California State Supreme Court ultimately ruled for the prosecution. And last January, almost 31 years after Robin Samso's murder, Rodney Alcala went on trial again. One of the many things that hurts me is that that was the last face she saw. And that bothers me because he's so ugly and he's so evil. The Samsos are now joined by four other families. I'm Didi Peranto, Jill Peranto's sister for whom the pain of loss is still as raw as it was 30 years ago. The question was always there and frequently asked by friends and family members. Did they ever find out who George's killer was? 25 years of reliving that terrible time and always the same answer, no. For so many years, I, I just felt like I was always looking over my shoulder. There was somebody out there that had murdered my sister and where was he and was he coming back your heart goes out to him we've had somebody to hate for 31 years they haven't 
this is the case that he wants to fight. Matt Murphy knows getting a conviction won't be enough. We've got to get not only a conviction, but we've got to get a conviction that's going to be upheld on appeal. Complicating the legal challenge for prosecutors, Rodney Alcala is serving as his own attorney. I presented evidence that this was taken in San Francisco. Even though he stands accused of five vicious murders, as Rodney Alcala addresses the court, it is clear that for him, one case stands apart. At 3.15 p.m. on June the 20th, 1979, Robin Samso left Bridget Wilford's apartment. He knew the facts cold, and he spent 30 years on death row memorizing every single photograph, every single police report, every single detail of the case. He had even written a book about the Samso case. And Alcala is so eager to defend himself, he takes the stand. By taking the stand, it allowed the door to be open to so many things. Murphy could now attack Alcala using statements he made in his book. It was published in 1994, uh, long before these DNA tests were, were conducted. So he was married to a certain set of facts. Like the facts surrounding that trophy bag of earrings found in Alcala's storage shed. No one other than Mrs. Samso has ever come forward and said Robin had pierced ears. Alcala had disputed the evidence that one pair had been worn by Robin Samso. But because of new DNA evidence, he could not dispute that another pair belonged to another of his victims. Charlotte Lamb. In his book, he said that his sister Christine gave him those earrings. 27 years later, we were able to test those earrings and we got a DNA hit for Charlotte Lamb. Undaunted, Alcala calls Robin's mother as a defense witness. That was one of the hardest things I've ever had to do in my life, having him ask me questions. Desperate to impeach Marianne's character, Alcala confronts her about her testimony at his first trial when she reportedly brought a gun to court. He asked you if you brought a gun to court on the first trial, and you answered? Yes, I did. Were you going to shoot him? I was going to shoot him right between the eyes if I could have gotten a shot at him. What stopped you? Robin's hand on my wrist, if the truth be known. All of a sudden, I smelled her shampoo. And I felt this warmth in my hand, and I couldn't get my hand out of my purse. An even bigger miscalculation for Alcala. He offered no explanation for the L.A. cases at all. Ignoring the L.A. cases. That was bizarre. It was as if those victims were invisible to him. The scientific evidence in the L.A. cases totally overwhelmed him, was over his head, and he had no idea how to challenge it. The four Los Angeles cases is a device for secretly and dishonestly attempting to control the outcome of the unrelated Samso case. Magical thinking. So magical thinking. In his own closing argument, Matt Murphy ends on what is for him, too, the heart of the trial. Part of what gets that guy off over there, it's not just the conquest and the sneaking around and the rape and the killing and the torture and the sadistic infliction of pain, he wants a free murder. You're going to convict him of the LA cases. He knows that. Everybody knows that. But Robin Samso's day in court is today. Are you nervous? Are you angry? Are you afraid? Nervous and afraid. Just the thought of maybe 
he could actually win. When Harold Dow died suddenly last month, he had not quite finished his work on the story of Rodney Alcala. What you are about to see is the stunning conclusion to this tale, told mostly in Harold's voice. You will also hear me telling parts of the story he wasn't able to record. Your stomach's in a knot, you, it's up in your throat, and you just, you, you're like a zombie walking around. It's a familiar feeling for Robin Samso's family as they wait for the third jury over a period of 30 years to decide Rodney Alcala's fate. We, the jury in the above entitled action, find the defendant, Rodney James Alcala, guilty of the crime of murder in the first degree. Victim, Robin C. Samso. The jury takes just one day to find Alcala guilty of Robin Samso's murder. He's also found guilty of murdering the four other women, Jill Peranto, Jill Barcombe, Georgia Wickstead, and Charlotte Lamb. Rodney O'Connell does absolutely 100% deserves to die for what he did. In a separate penalty phase, to ensure that Alcala gets the ultimate punishment, the prosecution called a ghost from his past to the stand. My name is Tali Shapiro. I'm alive because I have a guardian angel. Tally Shapiro, who was kidnapped and left for dead in 1968, was not prepared for what Rodney Alcala said to her. He apologized. And I couldn't even tell you what it was exactly he said because I didn't hear him. Shapiro, who has a teenage son and works as a personal chef, insists she's not a victim. But she wants the system that set her attacker free held accountable. It should have stopped with me. And why, why in the world are there so many other victims when it was a known fact of what he did to me? After Tally Shapiro's dramatic appearance, the jury was finally ready to recommend a sentence for Rodney Alcala. Harold Dow picks up the story. Rodney Alcala, addressing the same jury that convicted him of murder, makes an awkward argument for clemency. Let me put the death penalty in perspective for you. If you desire to join in the killing of a human being, you and the families of the victims will have to wait at least 15 to 20 years while the case slowly churns through the appellate process. He wanted to play an Arlo Guthrie song, Alice's Restaurant, and there's a, a part in that song where he talks about wanting to kill people. And he played that incredibly for the jury. Matt Murphy said that that song told you more about Rodney Alcala than, than anything else that he did in that courtroom. That song was him. I pictured him singing the lyrics when it was on. Alcala's perverse closing statements did not sway the jury. Remain seated. Court is again in session. They took only an afternoon to decide the ultimate question. We, the jury, in the above entitled action, determined that the penalty to be imposed upon defendant Rodney James Alcala to be death. Yes. Yeah. 
But the saga of Rodney Alcala's murderous odyssey still hasn't ended. After he was sentenced, Huntington Beach police released photos recovered from Alcala's Seattle storage locker of more than a hundred young women and even some children. Investigators are hoping to identify them and learn if Alcala claimed still more victims. Maybe, just maybe, isn't the victim out there or victims someplace across the United States? Places he's traveled? That's correct. We feel very strongly that if, uh, The nationwide interest in the trial and the photos have given new life to murder cases that have remained dormant for years. There are four other murders in New York that have been linked to Rodney O'Connor. We've worked very closely with the, uh, with the police and uh, we have every confidence that, uh, that they will get the job done in New York. I don't want him to go to no other states and, and be held accountable for no, nothing else because he can only be killed once. I want him to die here. I want to live one day longer than him. I want to live one day without feeling or hearing the name Rodney Alcala in my mind. I could die a happy woman. what every woman dreams of. Beautiful house, beautiful wife. They found her slumped in the driver's side seat. Her death immediately was suspicious. It was much more than a car accident. He was spotted in Toronto, Syria, Lebanon. Poof, he's gone. If you were to watch this in a movie, you wouldn't even believe that this is possible. Bye-bye! Those little white Mary Janes on that floor with that metal bar that he used to strangle her with. And that puddle of blood, it just looks like too much blood to come out of a, a tiny little eight-year-old like that. We determined that, that she was dead. We started searching the residence. There was a lot of photograph equipment and all of us were amazed at the amount of photographs that he had there of young girls, very young girls. We found a lot of ID, picture ID of a Rodney Akala. He was a uh, student at UCLA. That's one of the first times he ever turned up on the radar for law enforcement. My name is Matt Murphy. I'm a deputy DA for the Orange County DA's Office Homicide Unit. Rodney O'Connell managed to give them the slip. As things would have it, we were always 15 minutes behind him. All the emphasis went on, where is he? Where did he go? And we kept coming up empty. All outward appearances, Rodney Alcala was a handsome. Please welcome Rodney Alcala. Charming. I'm called the banana, and I look really good. Smart young man that wouldn't hurt a fly. So I'll take one. Number one. Paul Shapiro was only the very beginning of a long series of murders and assaults committed by Rodney Alcala. Rodney Alcala is the devil, and he had to be stopped. The killing game. Tonight's 48 Hours Mystery. You can tell that she had been raped. There was no breathing. I, I thought she was dead. We all thought she was dead. 
Los Angeles police officer Chris Camacho found eight-year-old Tali Shapiro battered and bleeding, her throat constricted by a 10-pound steel bar on that September morning in 1968. So I grabbed a towel and I uh, picked up the edge of the bar and I, I laid it off to the side. Camacho then left Tally's side to continue searching the house for her attacker. Moments later, when he walked back into the kitchen, he witnessed a miracle. She was gagging and trying to breathe, and I thought, one for the good guys. She's going to make it. Clinging to life, Tally was rushed to the hospital. And had it not been for that police officer, Tally Shapiro would have died on Rodney Alcala's kitchen floor. The suspect, 25-year-old UCLA graduate Rodney Alcala, had slipped through the officer's fingers. When I kicked in the front door, the other officers came running around to assist me, and uh, the suspect went out the back door. But to Camacho, all that mattered was saving Tally. When I was in Vietnam, and we were in combat, I was uh, trying to save uh, this guy, and uh, didn't do it. He died. So with Telly, it was kind of like God gave me a second chance to save someone. Soon after Tally healed, her parents moved her out of the country. I found out that they had moved to uh, Mexico, that they did not want to raise the daughter in uh, the society any longer. And that was the last I heard of them. The investigation was now in the hands of detectives. With Alcala in the wind, Detective Steve Hodell was grasping at thin air. All kinds of rumors. He'd gone to Mexico, he'd gone to Canada, he'd gone to Europe. Uh, but we kept coming up empty. Back then, you know, we didn't have a lot of the forensics you have today. Complicating matters, it seemed no one was willing to believe the gifted student could be responsible for such a heinous crime. He was a snake charmer. I went and talked to his professor at UCLA. He says he wouldn't harm a fly. He truly believed that, you know, and, and a lot of people did. And, and we went to the FBI, you know, we said, this guy is going to commit other crimes. He's not going to stop. In 1969, the FBI put Rodney Alcala on its most wanted list. We've got to find this guy. We've got to get him off the streets. We've got to bring him to justice. Nearly two years later came the break they'd been waiting for. Orange County Deputy District Attorney Matt Murphy. Two girls went to their local post office. I was out doing my patrols. We just started our shift that day. And I was driving down Sunset Boulevard and I uh, received a call of beige-colored car with no license plates following this uh, little girl. Tali Shapiro was uh, an eight-year-old little girl walking to school uh, back in 1968. Good Samaritan, a witness, sees the little girl, the little eight-year-old Tali, get in the car, thinks it's suspicious, follows him, and puts a call into LAPD. Well, I went to that location and I started knocking, and I said, police officer, open the door, I need to talk to you. This male appeared at the door. I will always remember that face at that door. Very evil face. He said, I'm in the shower, I, I gotta get dressed. And I told him, okay, you got 10 seconds, open this door, I wanna talk to you. Uh, finally, I kicked the door in. 
the image will be with me forever. We could see in the kitchen that there was a body on the floor, a lot of blood. They said picture says a thousand words in that image. Of Mystery continues in 90 seconds. Tonight, we bring you the story of Rodney Alcala, which sadly is the last story reported by the late Harold Dow. Harold was a 48 Hours correspondent for 22 years, as long as 48 Hours has been on television. His passion and his generous spirit are deeply woven into the fabric of this broadcast. I'm Jay Dow, a correspondent for WCBS in New York and a contributing correspondent for CBS News. Harold was my uncle, my friend, and my colleague. He had spent more than a year working on this story and was just finishing it when he died suddenly last month. He was determined to bring this intricate tale to our viewers. So tonight, for the last time, 48 Hours presents Harold Dow. Eleven eight twenty five, code six one oh five. 